Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Is that a Polish word for SpongeBob? Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit, but they made it fit. Yay! Yay! Welcome to our episode about SpongeBob Pistester to Postis. Skip the Postis. Skip the Hi, I'm the wizard, Holden McNeely, with a spell for your whole ass. And I'm the bruiser, and I got my shield up. I'm ready to take some damage. Ooh, he's a tank. He's a tank boy, baby. In the studio, as always, the number one super producer, Marcus Sparks. Well, let's go. <laughs> he's a pyromancer. He's a pyromancer and a necromancer. We know mix. he's a berserker. We don't even have to question whether or not he goes into rages. Yeah. <laughs> and today's episode is about SpongeBob SquarePants. Jake, what a one. It was Jake's suggestion to do this episode, uh, and what a wonderful suggestion it was. I've been working on the internet for a couple years now, and mm. something that kind of has floored me is just that every year there's at least. Four new SpongeBob memes. Yes. There is something about SpongeBob SquarePants that has like ingrained itself into the psyche of every adult currently working or engaging with the internet. And I don't know what it is, but like I could only see so many still still pictures of Mr. Krabs with the caption that feel when you you she keeps sucking, but you already nut. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that on the walls of my own apartment alone, because I go into a black when I get blackout drunk, I print them out and I just put them everywhere, much to my fiance's when chagrin. TFW go to class and the special kid says I brought my happy sword <laughs> and then it's like Patrick and he's, he looks he looks nervous <laughs> Spongebob Squarepants is like a total thing 
Yeah. It's like a huge, huge, huge thing. It's on its 10th season now. It's the most successful independent property, I believe, that Nickelodeon's ever had. Mm-hmm. It's it's sold billions and billions of dollars in merchandise. I believe the and- exact number is uh, Nickelodeon has made uh, $12 billion in merchandising off of SpongeBob SquarePants. Whoa. Which is, as when we get into the story, is kind of amazing given that at its core, it is an incredibly sincere and and artistically like uh, a pure product yes and let's get to that goddamn core jake let's just drill our whole brains and bodies into the core of what where spongebob came from what has led to it's such such phenomenal success and what you know where it will go from here we'll have our predictions corner at the end like we always do where we predict where the franchise will go right I mean, jake we do that every continue, week right? it'll probably continue to steadily decline as more and more of the original staff leave but true, whatever it's true. fine <laughs> uh ravioli ravioli let's get the episode of <laughs> is that a reference to an episode? It's all a reference to an episode. <laughs> I have to make a comment. I, I have never seen an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. Really? Okay, never. I have to make an admission. This was like a crash course for me as well. Yeah. I mean, it's just, again, it's kind of like the Power Rangers, but even more so. Just past my time. Yeah. Just, I was just a little beyond it. And, and you know, I feel like if you didn't have kids... Or, or you, you know, it's just, it's just within the realm of something I wouldn't. But, but here's, looking at it, here's what happened though. Us three, and probably a lot of people listening right now, are in this weird special zone because when we, because uh, SpongeBob came out when we were in high school, and that was the exact age where finally, after so much like pressure, you could not admit that you still watched Nickelodeon even a little. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I tried watching an episode of SpongeBob, and then he started talking, and I just went, ugh, nah. Tom Kenny? <laughs> Tom Ke- He's what? like one of my favorite things about SpongeBob, and we'll get into that. Tom Kenny, You're being a Marcus. real Squidward right now, Marcus. <laughs> Best friends with Bobcat Goldthwait when they were kids, Marcus. I love Tom Kenny. He was awesome in Mr. Show. <laughs> <laughs> Stop doing that weird thing with your throat. <laughs> that's literally how Tom Kenny does the voice. See, like, that's you can't you you can't do that laugh without it. You have to like physically push your fingers <laughs> against your Adam's apple in your chin and go. <laughs> see, I like it when you do it. That's because I, I think it's because so I can see you to move. <laughs> it was like it was. It's, it's like a much more optimistic, cleaner Ren and Stimpy, which I'm not against. I think that I would have absolutely shat my brain over it back when I was a little kid because I loved oddball, just weird kind of strange. But I think you know, but it just had so much heart as well and so much positive vibes. And you know, I think that's what makes it so endearing and wonderful for for all ages. So at the height of SpongeBob, the people that were watching it were children, like, uh, you know, two-year-olds to to 11-year-olds, and college students. Stoned as fuck. Stoned as fuck college students. And we were stuck in the middle. We were like the eye of the storm. And so we just kind of let this cultural tsunami, not the right weather formation, uh, pass over (laughs) us. And so now that we're now that I'm seeing it on the internet, I just I had to like go back and, and just really try and wrap my head around why SpongeBob. And that is what the name of the game is today, people. Going through and figuring out why SpongeBob. Why don't we take it all the way, get in the little way, way back machine. No, the experiments haven't been finalized yet. <laughs> yes, I understand the man was turned inside out when he walked outside so of the machine. So many chimps dead that we have to explain the way, way back machine is not ready. I was talking to the way, way back machine, and by the way, the way, way back machine can talk. It was whispering secrets You gave to me. it the emotions? I, look, it told me to fill one cup with poison 
and one cup without poison. I want you to drink one of these two cups, Jake, before we get into the way, way back machine. What has science done? <laughs> okay, look. We're getting into the way, way back machine. We're going to go all the way back to the origin of SpongeBob SquarePants. You can't talk about SpongeBob SquarePants without talking about the creator himself, and that would be Mr. Steven Hillenburg. Now, I uh, did a lot of research going into, like, the oral history of SpongeBob SquarePants. I read a lot of interviews with the voice actors and the writers. Are you trying to show off right now? No, I'm just, try- I'm just saying trying that I— trying to make I, me feel bad for I, not doing I went, I went digging, <laughs> and— uh, no, I see your, I don't have notes. I just have like two Wikipedia tabs <laughs> and I believe the words Tom Wilson equals Biff exclamation point. <laughs> um, but I could not find anyone that wasn't completely in pure reverence to Steven Hillenburg as a creator and as a showrunner and as someone that genuinely like kind of floored all of them with his just dedication and vision and sincerity. Like no one was like oh, this hacker, like, oh, he fucked me over. Everyone was like, he was kind, he listened, and, like, when something didn't go his way, he was the first one to to roll up his sleeves and, like, make it happen the way he envisioned it. I mean, we'll get to it, but he almost didn't want to try to make his own show because he saw how exhausting and how difficult it was for um, other others around him that he was working for while they yeah. were creating their own. I mean, this is a kind of guy that just seems very even and level-headed, um, and, and we'll kind of uh, find out more about that. But the story starts in August the 21st, 1961, on a U.S. Army base. Oh, an army. You can't leave here, boy. My crotch, my crotch itches. <laughs> oh my God! What's that machine? It says way, way back on the side of it. I don't know it. Oh, oh! I'm being vaporized. Oh! Um, good, good, good pastiche. <laughs> it was a callback to a joke we made five seconds ago. Uh, there you go. So improv training in New York City will give you uh, the ability to do that. Uh, father, His father worked in the military. His mother taught visually impaired students. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> then they moved to Anaheim, California. But the real important part of his upbringing mm-hmm. was that he became very, very into marine life. He became he was a part of like a dive team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, he was uh, an artist uh, at an early age. His first drawing was of an orange slice. Um, and he actually had an interesting uh, d- drawing that he, the first drawing that it noted that he got praise from was a drawing of a bunch of army men kissing and hugging each other. And his teacher loved it. And he, as he recounted, it was probably because the Vietnam War was happening and she was like super against the war. So it was really more like, but he didn't write it, he didn't draw it for any reason other than he just thought it would be like kind of funny or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But um, I think that that all goes in, you know, we'll kind of get into the whole bikini atoll thing and everything but there's definitely some interesting uh connections to war and uh some weird undercurrents that is heavily denied but seems to sort of come out in this in this very innocent cartoon his educate he'll often talk about in interviews about how his education was kind of torn between him getting praised for his artwork but his kind of passion for marine biology and his kind of perception that that was the more straight-laced safe career path absolutely uh that drove him to study that while still pursuing the arts and still creating uh these surrealist landscapes and kind of really like art was definitely his passion but so was marine biology and trying to 
bring the two together was just kind of these, you know, these the puzzle pieces wouldn't fit. Yeah, he never could quite come to terms with the idea of like putting the two things together. It wasn't until years and years later. And another kind of interesting aspect of uh, his time around in high school and after, he worked as a fry cook at a lobster boil and a fast food uh, and, and lobster <laughs> boiler in a fast food seafood restaurant, just like SpongeBob's occupation on the show. Knowledge for your ass. <laughs> all right? Don't fall over if you're walking to work right now because of all of the knowledge. I mean, I bet a lot of a lot of fast food workers would watch SpongeBob and be like, oh my God, how do they know so much about spatulas? <laughs> uh, uh, so he ends up teaching children out, out of college at the Orange County Marine Institute, now called the Ocean Institute, I believe. He did this for three years. You and know, you, you pet the little, you pet the, you know, there's like the little starf, grab a starfish and let the kids go like, ew, right? and this like is, you learn how to tie knots. This and- is one of those cool places where like you got to go there on a field trip at school and mm-hmm. it was like kind of the funnest thing you did all month. I mean, like, yeah, math is cool, but remember that time a month ago where we saw an otter? <laughs> <laughs> he said working God, there- I love otters at those like mar- maritime centers. Yeah. Oh, they they don't know they're prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said working there I saw how enamored kids are with undersea life, especially the tide pole creatures, which of course would be the creatures we would later come to know in SpongeBob knowledge for your entire <laughs> ass. Do you ever cry upon our knowledge? <laughs> Let us know. Write us at Wizard in the Bruiser. You've been playing P- a lot of Dark Souls. Yes. There's like a lot of low getting <laughs> That's the thing. That's how you really learn about Wizard and the Bruiser more. You got to read the item descriptions. Hello there, Ashen One. <laughs> Ashen One, this world, it bleeds. <laughs> upon the goodness of man, we break upon the soil. Did you know that S- Stephen Hillenberg, the creator of SpongeBob, worked alongside Tidepool creatures? <laughs> In fact, he was tasked as part of the art department to create an educational comic book. And that comic book was called The Tidepool, which featured a character named... Bob the Sponge. <laughs> Ashen one. Free me with death. And of course, of course, the, of course, the giant crabs in Dark Souls 3 in the swamp, heavily influenced by the crabs in SpongeBob. Um, <laughs> so, um, where were we? He, of course, writes this uh, kind of comic book as a learning tool. He was approached by some people there who discovered he was an artist. By there, I mean the Ocean Institute, which used to be called the Orange County Marine Institute. And uh, it was called the Intertidal Zone, which I'm surprised didn't go on to be the name of the show. <laughs> uh, it featured a character named Bob the Sponge. Now, this Bob the Sponge looked much more like a sea sponge. It was kind of round. It looked kind of like a rock. A Symmetrical, bumpy, yeah, like an actual natural like, sponge, like a real ass sea sponge. Um, and and he along the way, and and this actually ended up being very successful. Kids really loved this little comic book. He ended up being pulled much more to arts. He ends up in the experimental animation program at Cal Arts, studying under his beloved mentor, Jules Engel. Oh yeah, uh, Jules Engel was a uh, animator for Disney and. Uh, uh, I believe his his radicalization, the thing that finally made him like go, damn it, no, I'm an artist, I'm a cartoonist, is he went to like one of those Spike and Mike animation festivals, which were all the rage back in the day, and like it kind of opened his mind to the 
to the uh, possibilities and the visions that you can bring to reality. He was heavily influenced by at one of those festivals by Paul Driesen's The Killing of an Egg. Now, did you uh, I could not find that. It's on YouTube. I totally found it, and it's really interesting. I would definitely recommend anybody who's listening to this go check it out. Especially, go check out that, and then go check out his first uh, animation project, The Green Beret. And that I saw. And a lot of similarities between the two. And we'll get into The Green Beret in a second. But just to talk about Paul Driesen's, I believe it's Driesen's. I believe it's a French... Uh, uh, animator. It's really interesting. It's this guy cracking an egg um, and it, and every time he hits the egg, the the egg on the table just goes like ah, oh, stop it. What are you doing? Stop it, please. Please don't. Maybe he was Italian. And uh, <laughs> after he, he finally caves the egg in completely and then you hear a knock above him and he's like, what are you doing? Hey, stop it. And he stands up and you see that his body is like a yoke. And it's like he's also like within. And he's like, please, don't. Don't. What are you doing? And pretty much repeats all the lines again as his home comes crumbling in on him because somebody is, of course, bashing him inside his egg. And it's really cool. It's very simple. I mean, it's not like mind-blowingly uh, awesome looking for today's standards, but it's definitely can be seen as interesting from back then. You know, and another thing I wanted to bring up before we get into sort of his uh, foray back into art, he was heavily influenced as a kid by Jacques Cousteau films. Of course, mm-hmm. the French oceanographer that would sort of talk like this. Um, the ocean is a place of beauty. <laughs> ah, Sick cuttlefish. <laughs> Man, I kind of wish Vati Vidya and Jacques Cousteau would like hang out and do like a, a sort of couch talking head series. Here we witness the abyssal walker. <laughs> His grim task has been fulfilled, and yet he still searches for the kill. <laughs> um, the. Oh yeah, we 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 did gloss over that. That is where his initial spark. Because honestly, I feel like everybody goes through like you go through a dinosaur phase, you go through a space phase, and every curious kid will go through an ocean phase because it's literally full of monsters. I was heavily frightened by the sea. It's, I still am actually. Those images because that's become like a subculture kind of thing. The salophobia. Yeah, th- yeah, those images of of a tiny person and like a giant monster underwater that float around the internet. Those still get me. Like I. Ugh, I it just like freaks me out. Do you know that if a lionfish looks at you, your dick falls off? <laughs> I did know that. It's a potent toxin. <laughs> Travels by a light. But if you beat him on the head with your balls, <laughs> it'll grow back. That I also learned from Vati Vidya episodes. Actually, it's very weird episodes. He did a little run there about deep sea creatures. Um, so he is heavily influenced by by this stuff. He ends up working under Jules Ingle, and I, I want to mention Jules Ingle worked on Bambi. Fantasia. This dude is a fucking legend, and he would become his lifelong art mentor. This this guy, you ca- I cannot tell you how incremental Jules Engel would be to this man, uh, uh, Stephen Hillenburg, who would go on to make Cal Arts. By the way, I feel like we sh- we've gone into this before, but uh, Cal Arts Animation Program is basically the factory where. Most uh, in our Cartoon Network episode, a lot of those guys came through Cal Arts. Right now, a lot of the people that work on shows like Adventure Time and Steven Universe worked uh, went through Cal Arts. And Hillenburg was in the experimental animation department, whereas a lot of the people that will end up working on SpongeBob were like in character animation and like commercial animation, and you know, were were kind of less out there. They were kind of more focused on the the industry of making cartoons. Mm. And this was during a uh, similar time where animation was actually kind of going through a boom um stuff like nickelodeon and cartoon network 
and just the uh, even like movies like Space Jam and the Disney Renaissance, like 2D animation was a highly in demand form of media at that time. So it was kind of like there was kind of like this big creative and financial boom happening in that entire world. And I do think it's also important to note that he wasn't just in the animation program. He was in the experimental animation program. And even though he did kind of end up doing a more traditional route with SpongeBob, there are moments of experimental animation in SpongeBob where they're using different forms. And by experimental animation, the example I read uh, was, you know, using like sand, moving sand (laughs) around to create images and sort of animation that way, as opposed to using uh, formal traditional drawings Mm -hmm. to animate. And uh, I think that that's really interesting. And I guess that really popped into my head watching the first episode of SpongeBob again recently, where it cuts it when they're drying up Mm -hmm. in the third story. And uh, it cuts to them at one point, the the lady squirrel walks out uh, with the tea and it cuts them and it's just an actual (laughs) starfish and uh, sponge like laying on on actual sand. And that definitely felt like, oh, okay, that's some experimental animation sort of at play. We're just going to cut to live action now. Or or uh, uh, actually, now that I think about it, the the uh, oh, what's the name of the band episode where they have to be a marching band? Or oh, uh, I think it's just called Band Geeks. Band Geeks, right? And oh, by the way, I should mention for that episode, um, and we'll kind of get into this later when we talk a little bit about how they drew from their own life, but he was uh, a self-proclaimed band geek in high school, and I think that that heavily influenced that episode as well. And at one point, they cut to, they keep cutting to the audience, and it's live action audience high-fiving like, each other. It's with, like, footage face from paint. like the 70s. Yeah. Everyone has like mullets and are it's drinking beers. So weird. It's so, so weird. And I think that um, a, a lot of SpongeBob, even though, it, it, again, it, it's sort of traditional in the sense that it's just, you know, drawing mo- drawings and movement. But um, you, I feel like the style is there, but they're always sort of morphing it and messing with it. And you can never mm-hmm. quite put your finger on the animation style in a lot of ways. Like it'll just kind of jump and be something else for a second. Well, okay, uh, we got, we'll get, okay. We're, ju- I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, Jake. Uh, so, through CalArts Experimental Animation Program, uh, Hillenburg creates uh, Green Berets and another one. And called- you did watch the Green Beret. I did watch the Green Beret. It's great. So the Green Beret is a little, and again, YouTube it, guys. It's so good. Just and ladies, a Girl Scout has massive hands and things happen. Yes, uh, and and I, I just want to make a connection between that and the egg thing because she ends up smashing down mm. houses. And if you watch the animation and the way that the house gets smashed in from the inside, it's very similar to the egg cracking uh, thing and you can really see the line of influence just coursing right on straight through his original work and then of course uh wormholes would be his other big project now that was his big thesis project he he spent thousands of dollars on it, it uh, he also got a grant i believe to make it i couldn't find it online i, I could not find it anywhere and it. i'm fucking dying to watch this thing because it's it's like it's apparently about the theory of relativity it's this incredibly interesting artsy work he put it into festivals it's kind of what ended up getting his big getting him his big break and i cannot find it anywhere uh though i don't i didn't look super super hard but if anybody can man especially on the facebook page or something if, if you, you want to like post a, a, a link or whatever VHS of Spike and Mike's Animation Festival Volume 6 or whatever (laughs) bullshit it actually got released on. Uh, We would appreciate it. That would be super cool. But that film got him the attention of uh, 
Joe Murray Joe at the Murray. 1992 Ottawa International Animation Festival. And Joe was like, hey, why don't you come and work on a little-known show that I'm about to start up called Rocco's Modern Life. I love Rocco's Modern Life. I didn't realize how much I like Rocco's Modern Life until I found out that half of the SpongeBob staff was from there. It makes so much sense, too. It makes so much sense, including Tom Kenny, voice mm-hmm. of SpongeBob, who plays uh, the, no. oh, yeah. the heifer, right? Who yeah, plays, he play- uh, I, I didn't even realize because they're two kind of different voices. Mm-hmm. He said in a quote, he's like, for some reason, I just keep end up ending up playing like lovable yellow creatures. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like very positive, optimistic yellow, yellow creatures. Also, uh, the voice of Plankton is uh, Mr. Anderson. That's actually his SAG name. Like I didn't, I didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was the voice of Filbert. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, these I'm are like. Nauseous. I'm nauseous. <laughs> Turn the page, wash your hands. Turn the page, wash your hands. So, I mean, this is like the opportunity of a lifetime for for Steve Hillerberg in the sense that uh, he got to work right alongside um, Joe Murray and and, uh, immediately be – you know, a writer, a producer, uh, an executive story editor, um, and work right under his wing and just learn all the ropes on how to make an, a Nickelodeon cartoon show. Just a crash course. Like, what what amazing... And, and you know, I will say, um, if, if this guy's story inspires you like it inspires me, uh, he threw his whole life into making wormholes. He, he felt really risky about it, and he talks about how scary it was to move from a career in science to a career in animation, but he was drawn to it so much, he said, you know what, I'm going to take this risk, and then took an even greater risk by sinking everything into wormholes, and, but, you know, it, it, he put, got it into those festivals, and he met the people he needed to meet, and it got him broken completely in to the world of animation, especially uh, via Nickelodeon programming, and that is unbelievable. It's such a cool story, but it just goes to show that if you really love something so much, uh, you will you will kind of need to, to you know throw yourself in the line a little bit to get there. And and so, I feel like we haven't actually had a lot of stories of people that kind of non-committedly half-assed their way to greatness. Nobody, <laughs> nobody. It's like all these people who were like, you know what? I want something more. I want something more, and I want to pay my own way. And also, their entire families the entire time were like, no, no, you will be a money book person. <laughs> um. So, let's talk about the origins of SpongeBob SquarePants, right? We've talked about the origins of Steven Hildenberg, but this is when, uh, Hildenberg rather, but this is when SpongeBob really actually becomes a thing. As uh, Mr. Hildenberg quotes, I don't know if this is true for everybody else, but it always seems like for me, I'll start thinking about something and it takes about 10 years to actually have it happen or have someone else believe in it. It took me a few years to get SpongeBob SquarePants together. So the reason why I say that quote is because it would kind of been jumping around his head. Obviously, he wrote that cartoon, that little comic book pamphlet to teach kids back in the day. Um, it had always been kind of bouncing around in his head. But, it, you know, it sort of stayed in the background kind of kind of, you know, while he was working on all this stuff. Um, while that's going on, he's getting heavily influenced by shows like Pee Wee's Playhouse. That sort of character, that man child character oh. that applies to both adults and children that's somewhere Steven- in between. Steven Hillenberg had a vision for SpongeBob, and he knew that it was a risk because if you're looking at the landscape of television, especially in the late 90s, it was about coolness. It was about sarcasm. It was yeah. about irony. It was about, 
you know, it was more it was more action, more like seriousness and, and darkness and sort of yeah. you know edginess. The, I mean, you know, the funniest I, shows on TV were South Park and Family Guy. Like this was a and even before that, Ren and Stimpy was super dark and super twisted and weird. You know, and uh, and Hillenburg had a very old school appreciation for comedy. Like his influences, he wanted to recapture. Uh, the feeling of Looney Tunes, the feeling of like, uh, yeah, Laurel and Hardy or a Jerry Lewis film. Like, uh, yes, heavily influenced by Jerry Lewis. He would bring in writers and collaborators, some that he knew from uh, working on Rocco's Modern Life. Like people like Tom Kenny, who has an extremely old school comedy sensibility. Uh, if you remember him on Mr. Show, like uh, all of his characters much... are like ha-cha-cha Catskills throwbacks. I love Tom Kenny on Mr. Show. Uh, he, he was a- absolutely great. Uh, and yes, he does have that sort of style uh, and approach. Um, one almost would describe that sort of character as a, a square yeah, you know, like kind of a square. No, this isn't a, <laughs> this. That's the thing. SpongeBob is not cool, and it was on purpose. They were explicitly trying to make a not cool character, and it was also based on just the that world that he 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 saw children really latch onto of that sort of deep sea, uh, not deep sea, kind of right, right closer more to the surface. Actually, mm-hmm. all those fun creatures that you kind of come in contact now enamored there was. He said it finally dawned on me that if I was going to do my own show, all those things. I lectured about and obsessed about would make an interesting world. He actually had a person on Rocco's Modern Life read. Uh, oh God, what is the terrible name for that oh, cartoon? Sponge Boy Ahoy! Oh yeah, that's. <laughs> a, well, I was saying he, he originally read that pamphlet, the intertreper, oh. the intertitle zone, and uh, read it and said you should make a show out of it, and really pushed and prodded mm-hmm. him to do it. Um, and then yes, the original <laughs> name was Sponge Boy, and the show is going to be called Sponge Boy Ahoy. Ugh. But then they it found hurts out, to say, mm-hmm. like the taste in your mouth is. Sponge boy ahoy. But then, it's bitter. It's bitter on the lips. <laughs> thank, thank God uh, the name was already being used as a mop product, <laughs> so they couldn't use Sponge Boy. Um, and then uh, they, so they got uh, uh, SpongeBob uh, based on, you know, Bob the Sponge. Um, and then they got the word square pants when Tom Kinney saw a picture of the character and remarked, boy, look at this sponge in square pants, <laughs> thinking he can get a job at a fast food place. <laughs> that's that's how they got uh, the, the last name Squarepants for him. Um, he always talked about how uh, the show's premise is that the in, in, innocence prevails, mm-hmm. which I don't think it always does in real life. And I think that's what people loved about it, the escapism that you have in this pure joy and innocence of SpongeBob, SpongeBob while also being like kind of weird. Like it's not a clean-cut show per se, like in the sense that, you know, it's very normal and traditional. It's like super warped and goofy. And again, I I only note that because that's why like really stoned college kids would (laughs) super love it as well as little kids. Uh, I remember getting super high in college and watching the movie when it came out. Mm. And there's an entire scene where it's about SpongeBob and Patrick like eating too much ice cream and like. Even though the scene was about too much ice cream, all the close-ups and the expressions and the mannerisms and the animation, like, fully communicated that these guys were getting on a blackout drunk bender. <laughs> and I remember, and, like, the quality of the takes and the and the visuals were so evocative and, like, funny that I was just losing my mind watching that scene. A lot of, again, a lot of the interviews, a lot of the people talking behind the scenes, people like Derek uh, Dryman and... Uh, 
Mr. Lawrence. Is that it? Did I say Mr. Anderson earlier? I feel dumb now. Well, there's Barker's the talking dog, and I can't <laughs> believe they let him help animate his show in the first place because of his paws and his inability to. They... It's Mr. Lawrence, not Mr. Anderson. Oh, I'm okay. sorry about that confusion. Uh, I lied about the yeah. dog. Uh, you know, I'll talk about how, like, you know, they kind of they they helped bring it like. Steven Hillenburg had this thing kind of fully formed and all they could do was just add like little pieces to just like kind of like add flavor to this world like uh, you know he uh, Hillenburg designed like you know that the Krusty Krab was like a lobster trap and like that everything was made from like nautical tiki uh, aesthetics but like you know it was someone else's idea to like because you couldn't draw clouds in the sky to make those big hula flowers in the sky there was like one guy who added that uh, another writer came in late and like his original pitch was uh, the split pants story. <laughs> um, and so it was like it was this this vision that was like helped propped up by all these individual voices that he brought on. And a key distinction. Oh, actually. OK, let's go to the pitch. This is yeah, a I really legendary want to talk about pitch. I wish I there was video of this. I wish I could have been in the mm-hmm. room for this because right now I'm sort of thinking in this world and. Uh, trying to kind of get better and perfect uh, the art of the pitch and sort of get into that as I'm trying to pitch my own projects. And this pitch sounds so airtight and rock solid. I mean, the executives walked out of the room. They thought they were going to hear from them in a few weeks and find out whether or not they got the show. They, they left the room. They were gone for a minute. And they walked right back in and said, we will take this thing. Hillenberg and staff showed up in Hawaiian shirts with props, including uh, a model diorama of the characters inside a glass aquarium. Underwater terrarium, yes, <laughs> yeah. with um, all the models. Uh, a, uh, a seashell connected to an electronic voice box that would, like, give out jokes when they picked it up. Uh, he uh, Hillenberg played his ukulele and provided the backing music as he walked them through the opening uh, uh, premise of the show. And they and, did play the song that you yeah. hear in the first episode, the Tiny Tim song. I've, uh, it's like something in the moonlight. Dancing I'm in, in the, the moon- moonlight. I'm in the moonlight. Yeah, yeah. Having a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. My voice is stuck like this now. <laughs> oh, no, Jake. This is serious. Do you think if we got into the Way Way Back machine, we, we no, could find a way? No, we're not going back. You're getting in the damn machine. It told me you're getting in when the damn machine. We lost so many good men. <laughs> I know, Jake. It's the Way Way Back machine. I would you like to get in? Don't I'm not going us. to kill you. Don't believe his lies. I'm not going to kill you. Why I, would I kill you? I don't. I unplugged you. How are you still talking? Hey, I'm the Hey Hey Mac McGean. I'm the brother of the Way Way Back Machine. I'm a talking helicopter. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Sweet, merciful God in heaven. I'm a talking helicopter. I declare a moratorium on all bits. No I'm, more bits. I'm sorry. You hear I for, it, heard it first. I forgot which show I'm on. Is this Roundtable? I want more of my Hey Hey Mac Machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the baby baby. I'm a train. I'm a talking train. That's the third one where they go to the wild wild west, and uh, that one was panned generally by yeah. critics. Uh, also, in the room was uh, we talked about in the Cartoon Network episode the kind of like marketing wunderkind that was uh, Fred Seibert and uh, how he brought Nickelodeon to the forefront and jumped ship to Cartoon Network. Cybert was out. His protege, Albie Hecht, was still looking for a hit. He was like kind of the new guy in charge that was trying to like kind of make up for this uh, for Siebert's leaving. Cybert Siebert. We never we never settled it. We never settled it. So uh, it was it was Hecht's uh, kind of real like push. He was rooting for this show. 
And uh, this apparent legendary pitch that everybody talks about as this slam dunk, one of a kind performative experience that like took a room full of suits and made them into giggling children, uh, got the show, uh, got the got the pilot approved. I wanted to talk about a little bit of the writing process because I did find that to be incredibly interesting. Are you talking about how this was a storyboard-driven show? Storyboard-driven show, which is completely unique. Almost all other staffs were generally a writing-driven, script-driven show. But in this sense, they would come up with a basic outline, and then they would jump into storyboards, creating all the visual gags, Mm -hmm. all of the looks. And then off the storyboards, they would write the script. And this is what made the show, in my opinion, the unique sort of brilliant thing that it, it would it would become and why it's so successful is this different approach to things and I think it works so well for children's cartoons to make it driven by the actual visuals and the visual jokes. I mean that was the style of old Warner Brothers cartoons. It was mm. about gags like a character could explode and be fine the next day, uh, next scene it was, uh, you know uh, there's tons of old Looney Tunes references in the first season of Spongebob it is definitely the energy they're going for uh you know, uh, a storyboard would kind of just like be like, and then the, the, so the script would say SpongeBob busts out a guitar and starts singing about how he ripped his pants. And then in the storyboard stage, they would actually be like, no, but like, what if the guitar was made of sand and the stage was made of sand? And then like a bunch of like audience members filled in and like all the gags, all the actual like the funny things you remember was kind of taken up in the storyboard stage. And this was, you know, uh, teams of two would work on post-it notes over the course of like two weeks and just kind of like throw away ideas, introduce new ones. As long as they adhered to the basic skeleton that was in the script, as long as it was funny, it was in the show. And it's important to note that these storyboarders are also writers in their own right. Mm-hmm. And and they had they had that going for them, that they weren't just artists, you know, and 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 they had to be able to kind of pull the show along in that way and they were writing dialogue as they were storyboarding as well and doing things like that so uh but it was so everything from the inception of it to the pitching of it to the execution was singularly unique this wasn't rocket power this wasn't wild thornberries this wasn't uh fairly odd parents this was a truly like unique show hearkening back to entire eras and influences that were completely uncool the character it's people don't really think about this but having a rectangle character was actually bizarre it was spongebob is a very weird character design uh just within the realm of animation history totally it's complete it's it's completely bizarre and completely just works and i think to push that even further uh the old-timey feel of everything the voice recordings as well were all done in the same room like old-timey voice recordings and again uh tom kenny described it that's another thing that's given spongebob its special feel everybody's in the same room doing it old radio show style it's how the stuff we like was recorded and that was always on wednesdays everybody looked forward to it they'd get together they'd crack up they'd have fun and it really gave it again this feel of specialness of 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 uniqueness and of a total throwback to by a bygone eras and and sort of being corny and being you know doing doing radio play you know as a new cartoon for some reason it just fucking worked we did yeah we haven't gone into but the vocal performances are incredible like each character is the characters themselves are very well written and very focused but it's those acting performances that kind of solidified them uh 
Tom Kenny we talked about. Fun fact about Tom Kenny, he found out that SpongeBob had been picked up while he was uh, on set during the wheelbarrow sketch on Mr. Show. <laughs> you know, the one with the wizard and like the dumb science? Yes, so good. He got a phone call and was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to be in a beard. And he, I don't have to be in a <laughs> fake beard in a wizard costume anymore. Uh, also, another fun fact is his wife uh, plays one of the parts as well. He's trying to find... Who it is? Oh, oh shoot! I'll have to come back to it. But Jill Talley plays the uh, Mrs. Puff, oh Pearl, and the Flying uh, Karen and the Flying Dutchman. All, all Jill Talley. Um, by the way, if you could just imagine like how lucky their kids are to get to grow up in a world where dad is SpongeBob and mom is also like in SpongeBob. You and, say like, lucky, I say. Every birthday party is ruined forever because now dad's the star of the show. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Um, nah, Tom Kenny seems nice. Yeah. I'm sure he's- and that's the thing. And even better, bonus, when they start smoking weed, they'll love it all over again. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> Patrick's is voiced by uh, Bill Fagerbach. <laughs> Who was whose previous household name? Uh, he, I, Bill who? Are, are you saying that Dauber from Coach wasn't a household <laughs> name? Uh, Patrick is the source of like so many so many memes, and it's like a lot of really funny moments. Absolutely, little little little. Um, <laughs> that's a reference. <laughs> and uh, the voice of Squidward is the uh, horrifying named Roger Bumpass. <laughs> <laughs> Bumpus, I'm sure, mm. uh, who was like kind of this like uh, lifelong voice actor workman who would actually show up to the recording sessions on a recumbent bicycle. And after a certain point, a lot of Squidward's own like kind of uh, metropolitan eccentricities <laughs> ended up just being direct jabs at him. Uh, Mr. Krabs, Marcus, you know who the voice of Mr. Krabs is. I actually don't. Clancy motherfucking Brown. No shit. Here we are. <laughs> Born to be kings, we're the princes of HBO's carnival. <laughs> and Pet Cemetery too. Oh, very good. It's fucking the yeah. He's like he's a nightmare monster and like every other thing, but he's Mr. Krabs, the jovial, stingy crab boss. I had no idea. It's so weird. I mean, he's oh, and Lex Luthor in the mm. Justice League cartoons. Well, that makes sense. He yeah. does a lot of really cool stuff, but like. It is like depending on what generation you're from, Clancy Brown is either the scariest fucker you could ever come across, or like the most adorable star. It's 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 I, I really find it hilarious. Uh, so mm-hmm. oh, Mr. Lawrence did uh, uh, the voice of Plankton. Uh, he was a animator for Ren and Stimpy, who also worked on Rocco's Modern Life. He was also a story editor on the show, and uh, more important than Plankton, he was the voice of like all the side fish characters that you like all the quotable Just weird the random ra- chocolate chocolate <laughs> like all those voices were mr lawrence and that was like an interesting like i love how most people's voice credits when i was looking at them was like a uh, main character's name and then just and others because it just must be a, a you know a handful just so many different random ass just uh, creatures yeah. in that in that place the the way the show treats like the citizens of bikini bottom just all those random ass fish that like kind of show up with like i it's they become their own characters and they don't it's just 
It's just if you need a quick cutaway gag, it's just here a fish saying some random bullshit. It's just it's so many funny jokes. Now, do you believe the fan theory that it's uh, well? Tom Kenny has come out and said that Bikini Bottom was based on Bikini Atoll. Uh, but uh, that said, Bikini Atoll, of course, is the place where they did the the nuke testing, right? Mm-hmm. Where they they laid off the they shot out the nuke or set off the nuke bombs uh, when they were testing it before they did the old Hiroshima thing. <laughs> uh, Hiroshima. Uh, do you? you Make it sound like a dance craze. <laughs> Do you believe they're all able to talk and sort of be like human-like because of uh, mutations I, from the tests, uh, or uh, which has been denied, by the way? I but. always appreciated kind of what we talked about is the experimental animation uh, setup about how, like, how SpongeBob and Patrick and all the other characters interact through the lens of the real world when they're like out of the water or perceived through other people's like eyes. That it's just. If you can, like, get yourself down to their level, you can, like, see them as people. But from, like, a human perspective, it's still just a, a sea sponge in pants, a squid. Well, not a squid. He's de- like, Squidward is definitely an octopus. Like, yeah. really, like, just look at him. He's a fucking octopus. Um, and, a, and a starfish just kind of, like, floating around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I don't believe them. Also, uh, here's, here's another fan theory I'm going to shoot down. All the Rugrat kids are alive. Yeah. They're alive, all right? I don't care what creepy pasta you read. It's not Angelica flipping out because she killed them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So. uh, And both angry beavers are straight. God (laughs) damn it. You fucks. (laughs) Um, So I guess there's sort of also like a pre and post SpongeBob period. There's the uh, pre the movie and post the movie. And uh, that has a lot to do with Steve's, uh, Steven Hilden- Hildeberg's. Hillenburg. Uh, Hillenburg. Jeez Louise. Steve Hillenburg. It's like I'm talking to anime creators <laughs> over here. Steven Hillenburg's uh, exit from the show, which happened after season three and the movie. He halted production of the show after season three. By the way, he didn't think it was going to go past really season one. He was shocked that it was a huge hit. The he entire thought- team just set off to make the weirdest, most sincere, fun show they could. Yeah. And, like, we're we're not banking on a follow-up season. And so the thing got way more successful than he ever thought it would be. He he was just hoping for a season and a cult following. Uh, He ended up doing, after three seasons, he felt 60 episodes. That was generally the um, amount of episodes shows like Ren and Stimpy had. He felt like that was an admirable um, uh, amount of episodes to do that the show, you know, for him, it kind of creatively run its course. Also, he had to halt production so that he could make the SpongeBob movie because he essentially um, just was very practical about it, did his homework, his research, and for, for the most part, most people would kind of stop production, make the movie, and then, you know, go back into the show that you can't really do them at the same time. Being a showrunner is, especially for an animated cartoon, is one of the most demanding jobs possible. Everything has to run by you. Different teams across several, like, uh, you know, you have to make sure the script writers, the story editors, the storyboard artists, like, you have to watch dailies from the uh, animation coming in from Korea and, like, adjust changes to that. You have, you have to, to learn Korean in order to speak with the Korean people. You uh, have to make sure there's only brown M&Ms in the bowl. Uh, there's a reason why, like, Simpsons burns through creators. There's a reason why, uh, famously, Alex Hirsch from uh, Gravity Falls set out to do two seasons and was like, I am done. Like, yeah. it, it is incredibly time-intensive work. Um 
I thought the movie was fantastic and worth it. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. It's it did very very well. Um, I didn't see the second movie though. I didn't see the second movie, but I'm glad you brought it up because that film he also came back to work on, but he left the show after the film, correct? And uh, he gave the he stayed on as like an executive producer. I think he would just kind of like he would Miyamoto it, just kind of like walk in, smile say something and everyone had to just do it yes uh, yeah he he would kind of oversee uh he would just kind of give his approval to to the mm. episodes i think as they went um but yeah he he kind of took off now now do you felt like i mean of course the quality i believe it's gotten criticism for diminishing over time um it is now in its 10th season mm. are, are there things past season three is is it are there are, is it still solid or, or or what's the general opinion there jake uh a lot of fans i feel like uh are kind of at a certain point the 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 criticism was that these whatever edge or whatever like uh uh transcendent quality that SpongeBob had in its initial run has kind of faded and it was more about just keeping up the property for the sake of merchandising which happens to a lot of shows especially cartoons because you know the actors you know, work one day a week and get paid handsomely, and you can always switch out uh, create, creative people. And I should say, uh, he wanted to end it, actually, but it was just making so much money for Nickelodeon, they could not have that uh, be the case. Which, the more I think about it, the more it is truly bizarre that this is what this is what broke through. This was the breakout, omnipresent cultural thing like there was nothing bigger than spongebob um like you know you see the story of a of a man child who likes working at a fast food restaurant and there's cutaway gags about like uh i don't know there's the nosferatu <laughs> there's like a whole episode where the krabby patty is haunted and then like they resolve the issue just by being like but wait who is flickering the lights oh it was nosferatu and they cut to nosfer like a photograph of Nosferatu crudely animated flicking the light switch. Yeah, it's 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 odd how, you know, I mean, even parents were, were enjoying this, and I think it's because of maybe references like those and the fact that it sort of had a little something for, for everybody to, to kind of enjoy and latch on to. I'd also at this point want to bring up the idea that, you know, what I learned from this for me, the personal moral of the story, and it's kind of had a big um, effect on me as I'm kind of you know, uh, in my own life right now is I'm kind of in a state of sort of transition um, in terms of my sex. I'm a woman, and uh, I'm going to be uh, Marla. I accept that and way like, more than full-time Twitch streamer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you hear the phrase, um, jack of all trades, master of none. I think sometimes instead of, like, you know, you do hear about the people who are just become – are incredible and excel at one specific thing, and that's how they became great. But I think there's way more people, and a lot of the people who we have studied on this show and sort of discussed, and it's really kind of opened my eyes, it's it's actually about finding those multiple things that you are into, deeply into, and finding ways to combine those things in order to create, you know, I would love to use the last podcast as an example of. Marcus, you like violence and the art form of radio. And (laughs) and comedy, you know, and you combined those things, and that's what makes it special. Not that you were really good at any one of those things, but it's the combination that's so wonderful and unique. Oh, thank you. There you go. 
And I like yelling in a room. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, video games. I, I, like, yeah, I like to read. <laughs> yeah, I like, uh, you know, video games and, and all these things we talk about on the show and comedy and things like that. Let, you know, so if you're sort of really into multiple things and you don't know which way to go, instead of trying to choose between one, maybe think about how you could put it all together. And that would actually probably be more interesting than any sort of one uh, pursuant of any one of those things. Oh, and give a hundred million percent yeah. effort to make that thing as at a level that you personally would enjoy. Put your life on the line. I don't care if you have kids. Take that college fund. Put it into your short film. Daddy, daddy, why is there no food on the table? Sorry, Milliam. I gotta go be a pro trampolinist. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yeah, anyways, I don't know. That was just my little thing, Jake. Um, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I really think about when I was uh, doing this SpongeBob uh, research was, like, when SpongeBob really broke and looking at the list of, like, the most memorable episodes and which, like, individual bits uh, kind of, sp- like, spawned the most memes, there's, like, a big focal point around season two and three. Uh, which makes sense because that's when a show usually like hits its stride. They kind of nail down the characters and like the staff and the everybody from the animators to the voice actors kind of have a better handle on how the show is supposed to feel. But it was also 2001, and like I gotta say it, in a post 9/11 America, shit got bad. Shit got scary. Shit got like upsetting. Uh, I remember my I I'm. I hope I'm not talking out of school, but like my little sister had night terrors for years afterwards because she thought terrorists were going to get her. And through that, through that incredibly jarring and upsetting phase in American history, SpongeBob was there and SpongeBob was innocent. SpongeBob was good. SpongeBob was funny. And SpongeBob didn't change. He was like the rock that kind of held it all together. And he was innocent in a weird world. And I think that that aspect is also mm-hmm. really important. Not necessarily like a dark world per se, but just a weird-ass world. And I think the contrast is what really makes it great. Because if he was just innocent in like a children's show way, you know, like in a happy, fun, mm-hmm. friendly world and everything's good and everything's great, that wouldn't have been mm-hmm. what made SpongeBob so great, you know? Uh, maybe the ripped pants episode where he finds himself to be struggling to uh, get attention through his uh, physical strength and so he resorts to making a fool out of himself just for any attention whatsoever maybe that resonated i don't know um but uh yeah it's it was just completely different and kind of it's just it's just it's just comforting it is a comforting show to watch so do you have like a favorite episode or or moment uh i really liked the episode sb129 which is where do you remember the sponge gar meme from last year like that caveman sponge or it's like uh you you know, uh, you you you're at your girl's place. She said, "You're at your girl place," and she said, "You'd be all alone." And you hear someone pull up to the driveway. Huh. That's uh, but <laughs> that's where uh, Squidward, trying to escape SpongeBob, uh, freezes himself in the Krabby Patty freezer. Ends up traveling to the future, where it's only populate, where everything is chrome because it's the future. And uh, SpongeBob robots are in control of everything. To escape, he goes into a time machine and travels to the past, uh, where he comes across Caveman, SpongeBob, and Patrick, and they're animated so hilariously. And then the whole thing ends with like a trippy duck amuck void that is incredibly like it was 
if you were a kid, like you would not have like there was like eighteen memorable jokes there. Um, also, uh, another really funny one. Just even even the pilot. The pilot is so well. The pilot is so. I'm ready. The, I'm ready. The pilot is so good. Um, I was I, I watched it uh, actually earlier today. To be honest with you, help wanted if you're looking. For and um, it was especially during the part where he's making the food um, and and slinging those burgers. Like I just couldn't help but smile. Like and <laughs> and I think that the, I was like, oh okay, this is why this is. It, it, it's just impossible hearing that Tiny Tim song <laughs> and just watching him go to town in the kitchen. It's just impossible to not put a smile on your face. Oh. Uh, Frankendoodle. The yeah. Frankendoodle episode is really well done. Doodle of himself and uh, right, <laughs> and it comes to life. Yeah, the anim- just- and that's a really fun. I feel like Looney Tunes callback mm-hmm. to like the episode where um, uh, Daffy Duck gets ta- mm-hmm. uh, attacked by the pencil. Duck amuck again. Duck amuck. So good. Uh, also, you, you don't even need me to say this, but the artist that drops the pencil in the beginning is Hillenburg himself. Ah, yes. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and so it affected so many people across such a wide age spectrum that, like, uh, something really interesting happened where, like, on the internet, the go-to reference to was, for the longest time, Simpsons and Family Guy jokes, and now it's SpongeBob. Yeah, absolutely. The, the touch point, like, in a very fragmented world, in a, in a, you know, we all listen to different music, we all follow different uh, politics, uh, we all, you know, like different books you know everything is very fragmented but the one like home base the one place we can all like kind of just sit and agree like yeah that was funny and and good was spongebob right now there you go well is that about it f is for friends who do stuff together (laughs) u is for you and me (laughs) and is for anyone anywhere else down here in the deep blue sea there you go that's beautiful jake I'm going to murder you. Wait, wait, back machine, I cast you to hell. Ah! Wait, wait, back machine, I say thee nay. <laughs> you time machine son of a bitch. I just can't believe that thing we made up came to life and tried to kill us. I can't believe it happened. Um, well, I uh, you can catch me on Twitch. I'm Holdenator's Ho, and I want to go ahead and say... If you're listening to this uh, close to the time of the recording, April 6th, I am doing a 24-hour stream. It's from 1 p.m. to 1 p.m., April 6th to April 7th. Hold on, that's so dangerous. Don't do it. It's incredibly dangerous. I'm going to be preparing, like, some David Copperfield-ass shit. Um, I will only be drinking water, uh, and uh, I will not be eating, which Mm. is what I've told is what you're supposed to do. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I will be eating. Jake will be joining us. Well, I forget what time are we doing again for you? You'll just have to watch the whole thing, idiots. There you go. And Marcus will be joining us on Thursday night. Um, it's going to be a hell of a show. And uh, I hope you can join me um, as I attempt to try to uh, not have a nightmare uh, day job and live like a, a fun, creative, interesting life. Jake? Uh, I will be working at a nine to five slog. Uh, <laughs> But I'll st- uh, you can go to dorkly.com and but see it's stuff. Dorkly. It's dorkly. You know, it's fun. It's cool. uh, follow me at best Jake Young. I'm only getting angrier with each passing day. <laughs> uh, and uh, oh, uh, go to the Drawfee channel on YouTube where a bunch of friends uh, draw stuff and hang out and make good funny times. And occasionally I help and make 
weird voices. Please rate and review us on oh, iTunes. Oh, shit, please. We would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Every little rating helps. Um, Go onto your mom's laptop. I bet she still has iTunes installed. <laughs> Go into the podcast section and just drop us a little how do you do. Yeah, just say a hello. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We we love you guys. Uh, we'll be back next week with something else. Uh, and as we always say, a good evening to you. A good evening to you. (laughs) For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.